Good morning, Parkway Church. How we doing? Good. So glad you guys are here with us as we kick off the new series, Those People. My name is Mike Hurt. I'm the senior pastor here. And it's my privilege today to continue the journey through Scripture that we began early this year. Our plan for 2018 is simple at Parkway. We're open our Bibles to see what the Bible says, to learn the stories, to know the major players, to see the theological threads that run throughout the Bible. And as we look in the next four weeks at the books of like, like Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther and Job, we're going to learn not only the history of the people of God, but we're also going to learn how you and I can live our lives in a way that honors God and how you and I can take our next step in our journey with Jesus. We're going to learn from today's book, the book of Ezra, how to deal with the hypocrite around us. Next week, as we look at the book of Nehemiah, we're going to learn how to deal with critics. If you've ever had someone that says there's always something wrong with you or that you do, and yet you believe you're honoring God and doing the best that you can do, I want you to join us next week to learn how to deal with that critical voice. And then in Esther, we're going to learn how to deal with the manipulator, that person that's trying to treat you like you're a puppet on a string. We're going to learn how to have some new ways of dealing with that type of person. And then lastly, in the book of Job, we're going to learn how to ignore some really bad advice from some really good friends. We're going to learn how to deal with those people in this series. And I am so glad that you're here with us. Whether you're in Port Lavaca, Lone Tree, Parkway Victoria, or Parkway Online, welcome, welcome, welcome. As we jump into today's story, let me just go ahead and catch us up on where we've been so far this year. Because this year we've looked like it, I mean, we're, we're moving on through the Old Testament. And each book we've looked at, each story we've learned has taught us something about God and has given us a way to point to Jesus or have a Christ connection in every book of the Bible. So remember, we started in the book of Genesis and we started there because that's the first book of the Bible. All right, that's as good as the jokes get today. It's a holiday week, and so, you know, I took the joke off. And so, anyway, if, if you don't laugh, then I won't joke. And if you don't, anyway, moving back to the Bible. We learn in Genesis that Jesus is our creator God, that out of nothing the Father spoke, and Jesus and the Spirit were with him, and they created man and woman in their image. We learn in the book of Exodus that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the one given so that you and I can have life. We learn in the book of Leviticus that Jesus is the perfect sacrificial lamb. He satisfies every requirement of God to atone for our sins. The book of Numbers portrays Jesus as our lifted up one. Just as the snake was lifted in the desert and those who looked upon the snake were saved, so were the people of God saved by looking up to Jesus by faith. Deuteronomy portrays Jesus as our one true prophet. Joshua portrays Jesus as the captain of salvation. Judges portrays Jesus as our deliverer, judge. Ruth portrays Jesus as our kinsman, redeemer. First and second Samuel portrayed Jesus as our king. First and second Kings and Chronicles portrayed Jesus as our eternal king. Friends, we've done a lot of work in the word of God this year. And it all points to the faithfulness, the love, the grace, the mercy, and the call of God on our lives. Now we turn to the book of Ezra. The book of Ezra is going to show us a picture 
of Jesus as our restorer. If you remember when we first started studying 1 Samuel a few weeks ago, the people of God decided, rather than following a judge who was God's spokesperson and deliverer for them, they wanted to have a king like all the other nations. And the the final judge, Samuel, spoke prophetically because God told him that if they choose a king, they will fall prey to all the king's strengths and all the king's weaknesses. If they have a good king, they will have a good life. If they have a bad king, they will have a bad life. But God gave them their desires with that warning. You choose to follow an imperfect man, then you will have the imperfect life. You will have the imperfect nation. And the book of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles follows the progress of God's people and their kings. And now we get to the book of Ezra. 400 years later, God told them that if they followed a king, their life would be in the hands of that king. When we left the people of God, they were divided, two kingdoms, northern and southern kingdom. And now we return to the people of God, and they're not divided, they're scattered. They've been plundered and taken over by other kings and kingdoms. Not only have they lost their their resources and their land, but they've lost their brightest and the best. Other kings would come in and find the sharpest of the Jewish people and take them to serve in their court. Later, we're going to learn about Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. These were Israelis. These were Jewish people that were taken and exiled in Babylon because they were the brightest and the best, and they were going to serve in the king's court. So as we look at what happens in the book of Ezra, we're going to see how God once again restores his people. They're scattered because of their sin. He's about to pull them together because of his covenant with them. They're paying a price because they followed a king instead of following God himself. They chose a substitute king. And yet our perfect, faithful God is about to pull them together yet again. And that's what we learn about in the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, we hear about two trips back from captivity. The first trip back from captivity, the people came to Jerusalem and started rebuilding the temple. They were excited. And they rebuilt and dedicated the temple to the Lord. And then we get to know the man, Ezra, because he led the second group of people back from captivity. He led 1,700 people back from captivity. It was a four-month journey, and he led 1,700 people to freedom. Ezra's name means helper. And as we look at what he did for people, as he led them to freedom, and then as he picked up his role in their community, he was definitely a helper one who helped them love God and honor God. Ezra would lead one of the greatest revivals ever. In the book of Nehemiah, which we'll study next week, he he would open the, the word and just read it. And people would fall on their face and confess and repent and do business with God. In the book of Ezra today, We're going to see him in his passion for God's standard. We're going to see him in his passion for the people of God actually living consistently with the word of God. So let's jump in together. If you brought your Bible, open up with me to Ezra chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 8 and through 10 right now. Here it goes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. 
He had begun the journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month. For the gracious hand of God was on him. Let's stop right there. Anytime we're studying in Scripture and we see the, the, the date and a time and a location, one of the reasons that that date, time, and location is included in the story is that so you and I will remember that this is a real story. This is a story of history. This is a story of places. This is a story of real people. This is not a fictional account. This is not Greek mythology. This is a true story. And it took four months for 1,700 people to travel from Babylon back to Jerusalem. Their leader's name was Ezra. That means helper. And listen to what Ezra had committed himself to. Ezra 7, verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord and to the teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So this man Ezra was committed to three things when it came to the word of God. He was committed to studying it. He was committed to living it. And he was committed to teaching it. What made him a powerful man of God to restore the people here and to lead revival with Nehemiah? It was his commitment to the word. The Bible here says that the gracious hand of the Lord was on him. Why was the gracious hand of the Lord on him? He was fully committed. He wanted to know and understand God's word. He wanted to live God's word. And he wanted to teach it, pass it along to future generations. And as we look at what we do as a church, I would hope that we would have that same personal commitment to the word of God. As we look at building relationships that build disciples, it's essential that you and I have a desire to, to study and understand God's word. But it's not just to study and understand so that our head grows big. It's to study and understand so that our obedience grows big. Like Ezra's. He studied to understand so that he could live it. And it's not just so that we live it and experience the grace of God and the kindness of God on our life. But it's so that we will know and understand and live it and then pass it down to the next generations. Friends, as we look at building relationships that build disciples, what's your next step when it comes to your commitment to God's word? Maybe your first step in to God's word is simply say, I'm going to step in to start reading it so that I can understand it. We've given you an app that has Bible reading plans. It's absolutely free. You can get started today. Some of you have a commute where you can't read the Bible early in the morning, but you can listen to the Bible 35 minutes a day on your way to work. You know that that app will actually read the Bible to you? You're not a good reader? Listen to the Bible. You're not a good listener? Listen anyway. And it's not just that we read it, but we seek to understand it. For some of you, you need to take a step into your own Bible instead of waiting for me to open mine. So you take your step. You know what, Mike? I'm learning the Bible. What's my next step? Well, actually do what it says. What if we really believe that the word of God is always right and always best for our life? How would we live? If we didn't just hear it, but we did it. Maybe your next step is a step of radical obedience in this threefold devotion to God's word. Yours is a step of obedience. We're going to see here in a bit that Ezra called the people of God on their sin. And he called them to a radical step of obedience. And they took it. Is that your next step? 
to not only say I know God's word, but I actually trust God's word, I live God's word. And then lastly, is your step to, to begin to teach somebody else God's word. Maybe your next step is to start leading a group where you can pass God's word down to others. How can we expect others' lives to change and for generations to grow if we won't pass the word down to them? You see, Mike, I don't know much about the Bible. You probably know more than the third grade boy. You can learn and grow and lead them. You say, Mike, I don't even know enough to, to lead a third grade boy. Well, we got a two-year-old girl that would love for you to begin to invest the word of God into her life. Friends, you can do this. If you're understanding it and taking steps to live it, you can share it with others. And I encourage you to do that. What we see in the book of Ezra is a goal for our lives. We also see in the book of Ezra a warning against a big problem in our world. And that's the problem of hypocrisy. Anybody ever have to deal with hypocrites? Come on, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Don't point, just raise. Like we all deal with those people, right? You want to you become a hypocrite? Teach one of your teenagers how to drive. You're instantly a hypocrite. Before they were riding with you stuck on their phones, they go to driver's ed and now they're telling you everything that you're doing wrong. Where is that turn indicator? I don't need a turn indicator. You need a turn indicator. You're the student. How fast are you going? Doesn't matter how fast I'm going as long as you're not breaking the speed limit. You take your kid to driver's ed and you become a hypocrite real quick. In my family, we had <laughs> a hypocrisy that was really um, funny now that I laugh, but not really funny then. My mom and my dad were um, two, three-pack-a-day smokers, right? And off and on, they had tried to stop and they started back up, and there was even one time when my mom started up hiding it from us, and we found it that she was smoking again because she hid her cigarettes in the grandfather clock. And when time change weekend came around the corner, we are like, hey, we'll go change the clock. She's like, no! She was so busted, so busted. But my parents were two and three pack-a-day smokers. I mean, my dad seen me in the bassinet. I think we should call him Michael. Right? <laughs> Riding our Grand Squire, like station wagon, windows up, both of them, smoking. So funny. Try to explain to a teenager today what an ashtray is, and they will just be dumbfounded. Yeah, that place where we store our coins, they used to put cigarette butts in there. Oh, that's gross, Dad. I know. That's the world that I was raised in. And my dad would sit and smoke. And he would look at my sister, who's 15 years older than me, and my brother, who's five years older than me, and then eventually to me and say, if I ever see you smoking, you better be on fire. <laughs> year after year after year. Do as I say, not as I do. Now, to be clear, we learned the lesson from my dad. He never saw us smoking because we were never on fire. We learned our lesson. A few years back, Nick was in an English class, and they were preparing for the SAT. And he had his own hypocrite moment. The class was going through some, board, some, some, some uh, words. That's what I'm looking for, words. 
some words that were written on the, the board up front. And the kid that read the word before Nick mispronounced it. And Nick, being my son, raised his hand and said, he didn't pronounce that correctly. And made a really big deal about the right pronunciation of that word. And so the teacher said, okay, Nick, now it's your turn to read from the board. And the word underneath, the word that was mispronounced was H-Y-P-O-C-R-I-T-E. And Nick said, that word is hypocrite. Apparently, hooked on phonics did not work for him. And his class got such a chuckle that the kid who's just saying, hey, you mispronounced the word, mispronounces the word hypocrite. How hypocritical in that moment could you be? I'm going to mispronounce this word after judging you for mispronouncing this word. Now, I love my kid, and I think he's smart. I think he did it on purpose. I think he was proving a point. And in my house, we don't call people hypocrites, but we do call people hypocrites. <laughs> if you say one thing and do another in our house, you're going to get looked at and go, you hypocrite. <laughs> Somebody calls you a hypocrite, you get defensive. Somebody calls you a hypocrite, you go, yeah, busted. I am so busted. Nehemiah helped the people of God deal with their hypocriteness, their hypocrisy. Listen to how he did it. Listen to what the issue was. Ezra, did I say Nehemiah or did I say Ezra just a moment ago? Okay, thank you. I'm just checking to see if you're listening. It was Ezra that helped people deal with their hypocrisy. Here it is, Ezra 9, verse 1 and 2. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jezebites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the people around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. So when Ezra gets the second group of exiles home, he notices something that's happening in the nation. The leaders of the people of God are leading others to disobey God in this very specific way. God told them to stay separate from those that inhabit the land as they were moving into the promised land. God told them not to mingle, not even to befriend those that lived in the promised land as they moved in. And yet when Ezra's back, he gets word that they are intermarrying. They're intermarrying from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jezebites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. They're marrying everything except the mosquito bites. <laughs> and that's a problem. It's worse than an Aggie marrying a Longhorn because God said don't do it. It's worse. It's worse because it wasn't just about a marriage and a racial issue. It was a cultural, religious issue. It was a purpose of the people of God. Had God truly chosen his people to be set apart and sacred? He had. And yet the people, they believed one thing and they were living something altogether different. It's spiritual hypocrisy. So listen to what he did, Ezra 9, 3 through 4. When I heard this, 
I tore my tunic and cloak and pulled my head and beard and, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. So when he heard about the hypocrisy of people, he didn't just laugh it off and say, well, boys will be boys. He didn't just say, well, times have changed. No, he sat appalled because the people of God were believing one thing. They are a set apart, holy race, chosen by God and living altogether different. It says that he tore from his beard and tore from his hair, tore his cloak and his tunic. That is a sign of great repentance and brokenness before God. And he sat until the evening sacrifice. When the evening sacrifice came around, listen to what he did. We keep reading in Ezra chapter 9. When the evening sacrifice came around, he prayed. He said, God, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of what I see. I'm ashamed of our people. We are sinners who you've been so faithful to. He, he reminds God of his graciousness and he reminds God of his standard. And he prays this brokenhearted prayer. He says, God, help us to commit ourselves to you instead of disobeying you. Listen to how he sums it up in Ezra 9, 19 and following. What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have, you have punished us less than we deserve and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough to destroy us, leaving us no remnants or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. You are left this day. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not, not one of us will stand in your presence. Ezra prayed this prayer of brokenness. It said, I'm here, and the people are here, scattered. The people are here, destroyed and far away from you because of our own bad decisions. And you are gracious and you are kind, but you don't want us to live this way. As we study the word of God today, may our prayer match that of Ezra, where we just admit to God that there are parts of our lives where we're the hypocrites where we need to do business with him, where we have believed one thing and we've lived something altogether different. May he do that work in us. And as you think about how God might work and do a mighty work in you, how can you deal with the people around us that are hypocrites? Let's dig into that together real quick. First thing, if we're gonna deal with people that are hypocrites, you can fill in this blank. We've got to remember the origin of hypocrisy. One of the things that Jesus taught on time and time and time again was hypocrisy. People that believed one thing and lived something altogether different. And when Jesus taught on hypocrisy, he taught us the origin of hypocrisy. And he was speaking to the religious leaders of the day, his day, who just like the religious leaders of Ezra's day, were leading the people astray. And listen to what he said. Matthew 23, woe to you, 
teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will also be clean. Jesus teaches us the origin of hypocrisy. The origin of hypocrisy is attempting to live something that you truly aren't. The Pharisees were attempting to live godly lives, and so they did everything on the outside so that they would appear godly. They, like, worshipped God. They read his word. They dressed like, like he wanted them to. They tithed even, like, to the tenth of the tenth of a tenth of their produce. Like, they, on the outside, looked like they had it all together. You know, Jesus said they were blind because they were blind to the self-indulgence and to the greed that lived in them. The reason that they were hypocrites is because they were still dirty on the inside. And the only way to be made right, the only way to be cleaned from the inside out is by faith in Jesus Christ. And he said, you're blind to me, so you are a hypocrite. As you think about the origin of hypocrisy, I, I want to plant here for just a minute. Because of the origin of hypocrisy, we should expect people that don't know Christ to be hypocrites. I mean, none of us enjoy doing life and business with hypocrites. None of us enjoy like being played from time to time because they say one thing and do another. But if you are doing business, if you are doing life, if you're in relationships with people that aren't believers in Jesus, they're like the blind Pharisee. They may appear to be just and right on the outside, but on the inside, there's an altogether different story being lived. So we should expect hypocrisy from people that don't know Christ. They don't have a standard of God's truth. They're going to be hypocrites. They don't have a path to integrity. They're going to be hypocrites. They decide what's right and what's wrong for their lives. They will be hypocrites. We should expect lost people to be hypocrites. And at the exact same time, because of the origin of hypocrisy, we should expect believers in Jesus Christ to be men and women and couples and families of integrity. Because we have been changed from the inside out. When you believed in Jesus Christ, the inside of your cup was cleaned. And now he's working in you to clean all parts of your body and to bring all parts of your life into submission to him. You can be a person of integrity and consistency because you have a standard of truth that's not yours. It's the word of God. You can be a person of integrity because you have a path to deal with the duplicitous life that you may live from time to time. And that path is the Holy Spirit, the person of God living inside of you, showing you how to live, showing you how to obey the word of God. We should expect the world to be hypocrites, and we should demand that believers have integrity. Proverbs 11, verse 3, listen to this. The integrity of the upright guide them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Friend, believer in Jesus Christ, if you are flirting with duplicity, you are flirting with death. If you've got a way you act with some people and a way you act with other people, always changing the mask, you are on a path to 
great loss and destruction. But if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got an option besides that. Because God has cleansed you from the inside and is working it out through the power of his Holy Spirit according to his word. And so we submit ourselves to him. So the first thing we need to know is the origin of hypocrisy. The second thing, if we're going to deal with hypocrites, we've got to never give up on God's standard of truth. One of the things that drives us crazy about doing life and business with hypocrites is that they don't claim to be sinless. They just think their sin is less bad than yours. They just think that what they do wrong, it's okay for them to do that because you are more wrong than they are less wrong. Am I wrong in that? I'm not. And so that's why we must remember to never let go of God's standard. Ezra didn't laugh it off and say, boys will be boys. Ezra didn't say, times change, so do people. Ezra went back to the word of the prophet before they entered the promised land and reminded people of the truth. The standard of God's word doesn't change. The opinions of people may change, but the standards of God don't. And believer in Jesus Christ, if you build your life on your opinion or someone else's take, you will live a life that's full of hypocrisy. But if you build your life on the word of God, you will live a life of integrity. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 7, 6 and 8. He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. Hypocrites, as it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. Do you see what Jesus is pushing us towards? Having a life that's upright and full of integrity. So that if our heart says we love Jesus and our lips say we love Jesus, our lives say we love Jesus. We don't worship him in vain. We worship him with integrity. I will never, ever lose the power of the gospel at work in my life. Never, ever. And it comes down to this personal conviction. I'll move on. Just because everyone else has a sliding scale of what's right and wrong doesn't mean we have to. Just because everyone else has truth that will slide based on their wants, needs, and desires, we have truth that's fixed. It's God's standard. It doesn't slide, but instead it provides the path to living a life with integrity. Then the last one. Set the example. When you're dealing with hypocrites, set the example by the way you live. Luke 6, 46. Jesus asked this. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? An example of someone whose lips, words, mouth is close, but heart is not. If we are going to deal with hypocrisy, one of the things that we will quickly learn is that the only hypocrite we can change is me. The only hypocrite I can change is the one that I shave. Billy Sunday, an evangelist at the turn of the century, he said this about hypocrisy. Hypocrites in the church, because that's one of the reasons people say they don't want to go to church is there's just too many hypocrites. Billy Sunday says, hypocrites in the church, yes. And in the lodge, 
and at the home. Don't hunt through the church for a hypocrite. Go home and look in the mirror. Hypocrites, yes. See that you make the number one less. Jesus put it this way. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus, the master communicator, says, why do you look for the speck of hypocrisy in your brother or sisters, your husbands or wife, your friends or that church person that you know? Why do you look for a speck in theirs while you ignore the plank that's coming out of yours? Why do you look for sawdust when you got a two-by-four? He says, first, take care of your stuff. And then you'll be able to help your brother, your sister, your wife, your kid, your coworker, your friend, that church person take care of their own stuff. Because you're not there to judge anymore. You're there to be like Ezra, to be a helper. And the only hypocrite you can change is you. Here's what I know. None of us want to be hypocrites. None of us wake up in the morning and say, today my goal is to be a hypocrite. Today, my goal is to live a life that's duplicitous, to live a life that's two-faced, to live a life that dishonors God. None of us wake up and say that. But friends, unless you and I take some steps to say, I know the origin of hypocrisy. And because Jesus has changed me, I can be changed and live differently. Because I know the origin of hypocrisy, I'm not going to let my standard of truth slide. If we don't make some commitments that say it's my example that changes my workplace, it's my example that changes my home, it's my example that changes things. If we don't make commitments, we might not wake up and say, hey, I want to be a hypocrite. But we just might be one at the end of the day. So let's make those commitments. Let's commit to the Lord now as we pray. Lord Jesus, thank you the chance to open your word and to learn and to grow. God, help us as you helped Ezra and the people of God as they confessed their sin to you. Help us. Church family, in this moment, maybe you need to go before God like Ezra went before him and just pray that prayer of confession and repentance to God. Confess that there are things in your life that are sinful and harming you. Repent, agree that God is right. And ask him to change you in these areas. And commit to set the example as he works in you. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Jesus yet, your step isn't to commit per se. Your step is to believe. The Bible says that Jesus is Savior and Lord. And that you're a sinner who needs a Savior. He loves you. He gave his life for you. He died and was raised again from the dead to offer your life. And if today's your day to believe, we can mark it with a prayer. You can pray. Jesus, I believe. I believe that I'm a sinner who needs a Savior and that you are the Savior of the world. Thank you for coming for me, for dying in my place and being raised again from the dead. Today, I believe. Thank you for giving me life.